I'd love to have you take your Bibles. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you would, please. 1 Corinthians 15, and of course, the study sheet in your bulletin will be of help to you in keeping track of, of where we're going today. 1 Corinthians 15, we're spending three weeks in this chapter. A large part of the emphasis here is on resurrection, the significance of Christ's resurrection, and someday yours as well. Great realities are spoken of here, and I'm excited to come to this text. Several years ago now, of course, back in 2001, the attention of world media was was captured by a moment involving world missions. You likely don't remember, but on April 20, 2001, uh, down in Peru, over the skies of Peru, a young missionary family was making its way by air from one place to another. <clears throat> and that little plane, just moving missionaries, was mistaken as a airplane moving drugs. And the Peruvian Air Force intercepted that little Cessna, didn't understand what was going on, and shots were fired. Okay, 79 of them. And that little Cessna fell from the sky into the Amazon River, um, but not before bullets had taken the life of missionary mom, Ronnie Bowers, and her seven-month-old little girl, Charity. Uh, Dad, Jim, and their son, Corey, along with the pilot, survived the crash into the river, and uh, the world caught the news. Uh, Diane Sawyer, ABC primetime, interviewed Jim in the months that would follow. But something along the way that God was very gracious in, now in enabling um, the whole Bauer family to, to keep straight. Oh, my goodness, the, the loss and the, the sadness and the tragedy. Yes, yes. But at the very same time, the awareness that the pursuit of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, that, it, that it's worth it, that, there's, that it's worth it, okay? It's worth it to, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Yes, yes, sometimes a price, sometimes collateral damage. Yes, awfulness at times, but worth it, worth it, worth it. Um, I don't know if you remember videos. But this is a video, a 30-minute video, um, missionary um, organization, ABWE, I think, put this out. But this little 30-minute video tells the story of, of, of that whole episode, interviews Jim and so on, introduces you to the family. A little bit of, of, of Veronica's uh, heritage. There's also a book out called If God Should Choose that tells the story. You could pick that up on Amazon. But I, I, I remember this story because I've watched it a few times. It's been one of our practices when our kids were younger, especially to fill our homes home with videos and DVDs of missionary stories, great missionaries, people who's impacted the world for Christ. So I've got a whole tub of them because I wanted the house full of them. So when the kids were bored, they had something worthwhile to watch. And they did. This showed up a, a number of times, and I'm familiar with it a lot. Worth it all. Worth it all. It reflects truth from the, from the Bible. Truth from Jesus, you know, don't fear the one who can kill the body. Rather, fear the one who can send both soul and body to, to hell. Reflects the words of, of great missionary, the great missionary who lost his life. Of course, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Worth it all, worth it all, worth it all. Today's text takes us that direction. It reminds us of some realities about life and death. 
And you need to hear the message of this text. There's some amazing historical, historical, rhetorical type uh, questions that are asked. And uh, boy, some, some tight arguments that are woven as Paul expresses himself about resurrection. And we want to we pray together and ask God's help as we come to his word. And then I'm going to explain uh, the route we're going to go in dealing with the text in front of us. But would you pray with me, please, as we come to God's word? Our Father, it is always with a sense of our need for you that we come to the scriptures, aware that, that we can, can so quickly uh, uh, maybe listen or not and, and miss the point of a text. Oh, maybe even if we hear it casually, we can, we can fail to allow its message to penetrate our hearts. We don't want that. We don't want that. Father, it is our prayer that, that, that you would use the word of God today by the power of the spirit of God to, to penetrate our hearts, that you'd help us to hear it and to understand it and then to love it. And then and in loving the text to love you and obey you, that you would shape our affections by the word of God. So father, we, we invite your help here in this wonderful moment of opening the word of God together. We trust you now in Jesus name. Amen. Your study sheet, of course, has a couple words of review. Uh, it'll take you back a week or two, remind you of places that we've been, and a little introductory paragraph that says a word or two about, about where we're at today. Now, the, the, the portion we're going to look at involves three paragraphs, 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 34, and it lays out very nicely in three paragraphs. Each of them is a little different, and, and Paul, Paul weaves a very tight argument and he, he asks you to enter a certain way of thinking, okay, about speech. And so what I want to do today is, is rather than reading the whole text at once, I'm going to read a paragraph and make a few comments, then the next paragraph and a few comments. Um, but really, all three of them hinge around verses 12 through 19. Before I read that text, I want to just, just call out with you that Paul is using a certain type of argument here, and, and I hope you see it ahead of time and don't get you know, sidelined by it. He uses what is a kind of a classic uh, way of, of speaking and convincing people of things, debate even. It's called if then, all right? If then, if this is true, then here are the consequences. And then he negates the whole thing. He says, but that's not it. So you have to follow him, all right? It's kind of a, an interesting way of thinking. And I, I remember one time I preached this text on an Easter, and I, there was one person who just got lost by the whole thing, didn't track with the if, then, and then negation of the whole thing. And they were just saying, man, you, you just were, I mean, my goodness sakes, I couldn't follow. Anyway, they took me to task for a confusing sermon. We'll try not to do that today. But in verses 12 through 19, as I read it, I'm going to go right into the beginning part of verse 20 so that you, so that you get it. All right? And then as we address it, well, I'm going to flip it and address the positives. Okay, so stay with me. I think it'll make sense as we go. But Paul then says this, starting in verse 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then see if then if then if there's no resurrection of the dead, then here are consequences, then not even Christ has been raised. And and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and, and your faith is in vain. And we're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised. All right. You with that? All right. Here we go. 
If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. And then verse 20 flips it. But in fact, he says, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or or have died. Okay, I'm going to stop right there. Now, this first paragraph then follows hard on the heels of the text we addressed last week, where Paul, in leading us to a conversation about resurrection, he begins with the gospel. And you remember, we've been dealing with 1 Corinthians for quite a while. Paul begins this letter to a very troubled church by spelling out the gospel. What is this news about Jesus? And he does so in in great detail at the beginning of the book. And now as he has dealt with problem after problem and kept turning them to Jesus, he comes again to the latter part of the book, verses chapters 15 and 16, and he comes again to the gospel. So like bookends to a letter to a troubled church. He's coming again to the gospel. And you remember from last week, if you were here, Paul takes great pains in talking about Jesus dying on the cross, buried, rising from the dead. He takes great pains to say he rose from the dead and he was seen by those people and 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 a whole bunch of them are still alive. And if you don't believe me, go ask them. That's my paraphrase. This is the longest list in the New Testament of people who have seen the resurrected Christ. It's right here. Paul's trying to make a point. He says, I I realize, I realize not everybody rises from the dead every day. This is, doesn't just happen all the time. And you may doubt whether or not Christ was raised from the dead. Paul would say, you might not even believe me, but let me tell you, there were hundreds of people who saw him and a whole bunch of them are still milling around. Just start going to interview them and see if that changes your mind a bit. That's the first part. Now he comes in verse 12 to say, apparently there are some And I take this to mean some in this troubled church rather than some in culture because of the fact that he says, how do some of you say, it sounds to me like he's addressing people in a church. How can some of you say maybe under your breath or over coffee in the foyer, there's no resurrection of the dead. How can you say that? And then he starts beating on it because let me tell you, he says, if indeed that's true, if there's no resurrection of the dead, let me just follow this through logically. And I'm going to propose that he, he's going to mention six things. And I'm going, to, I'm going to mention them positively, not negatively. So I'm going to count on you to keep your finger on the text and see where these match up. Okay, you're going to have to do a little bit of work here yourself today. Um, It's not all on the bottom shelf. So finger on the text and you track with me as we move along here. Then I put all of this section under the heading. Christ's resurrection is loaded with good things. And I'm going to mention these six. So he says this. And my eye is, of course, on verse 14. Christian preaching has purpose. Christian preaching has power. You're glancing at verse 14 because he's negating it. If if Christ is not risen from the dead, what's the point of this preaching business? We've got other things to do on Sunday mornings. My goodness sakes, stay home and watch. I don't know what you'd watch right now. There's no football on. Uh, What else is there? Well, 
Christian preaching then has purpose and power. Now, you remember, you remember from the beginning of this book, chapter one, chapter two, Paul takes time to talk about the importance of Christian preaching, declaration, proclamation, heralding, right? This, this speaking of the word of God, uh, then it would seem as now there are some who would come along and say, what a, what a crazy way to spend time. And in a certain sense, it is kind of weird. Somebody gets up and talks and everybody's, you know, other people just kind of sit there and look at them and they talk for a while and then everybody goes home. Like, what is that? Right. But here's the thing. Paul mentions it at the beginning, circling back in thought. God promises to use the preaching of the word of God. Uh, he doesn't promise to use all kinds of other things. You could list of all, all kinds of other wonderful things. God promises to use the preaching of his word. How many times has it been in your life as in mine where I have sat someplace and heard the word of God declared, proclaimed in its clarity and authority. And maybe the point of the sermon was over here and God used a certain phrase or, or, or verse to speak to my heart over here, knowing exactly what I needed that day. God uses his word. I count on that. I just do. Otherwise, what in the world? And I, I realize as, as one who speaks often, a week later, were you to ask a lot of folks, what was last week's sermon about? Many people would say, I don't know, but I can look it up or something. I probably have notes. on. And you know what? I am not phased by that in the least because I trust the spirit of God to use the word of God to point us to him. I do. It's all there now. So Paul says, if Christ, if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, our preaching is vain. It's pointless. It's empty. What's the point of all this? But of course, flip it. No, Christ has been raised from the dead. Christian preaching has purpose. Christian preaching has power. Uh, end of the same verse as you look, digging it out yourself. I'm saying it positively. The second line, your faith is a solid foundation. Your faith isn't empty. No, you who have trusted Christ is your savior. Right? You who have heard the gospel and said, I believe it. I believe it's true. Paul is underscoring here in this text, you have not made a foolish decision to follow Christ. You have made a good decision to follow Christ. Your faith has a solid foundation. Christ has been raised from the dead, and someday you too will be raised from the dead. Someday you too will be with him. Your faith is a solid foundation. And of course, in this if-then setting, he's contrasting it. My goodness sakes, if Christ couldn't beat death, what chance do you have? And he says, no, no, Christ has been raised from the dead. You were, you were right. You were right to trust Christ. Your faith does have a solid foundation. And may I say to all of us, even in a world that looks at people of faith sometimes and says, good night, man. Seriously? You go, yeah, actually, seriously. Uh, Christ was, was raised from the dead. More on that in a minute. You can trust the Bible. That's the next. You can trust the Bible. I take that from verse 15. Those who are representing God, those in Paul's day who have preached, the apostles, so to speak, through whom God gave us the word of God. He's saying, no, it's true. We're not false witnesses of God. Those who said Christ was raised from the dead didn't make it up. In fact, it's true. Christ, Christ did rise from the dead. The apostles spoke true. The disciples who saw the empty tomb, they spoke truth. And recorded those words in the Bible, and he's underscoring, no, you can trust it. You can trust the word of God when it speaks of Christ dying on the cross, rising from the dead. Believe it. Your sins are forgiven. Is this a big deal? Yeah, it kind of is, isn't it? I'm looking at verse 17. 
If Christ has not been raised, again, the negative side, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. And of course, he flips it. No, your sins are forgiven. If Christ, since Christ has been raised, your faith isn't futile. You are, you are not still in your sins. You're forgiven by God. You're forgiven by God. Are you still a mess? Ask the people. Yeah, okay. Uh, maybe that you hadn't thought about that today. But for the most part, yeah, kind of. Right? We still live in this life. We still struggle with the indwelling principle of sin. Yes, ideally, hopefully growing more in the likeness of Christ. I, I understand that. But until the day that you stand in his presence, there's still going to be struggles in your life. But listen, friend, those struggles do not keep you out of God's heaven. And even if you get a, get a, a good handle on a lot of your struggles, that goodness doesn't get you into heaven. It's Christ, Christ alone, who gets you into God's heaven. His, his death on the cross for you, his, his perfect life, his righteousness credited to your account is what gets you into heaven. He's, he, Paul is saying, your sins are forgiven, man. Your sins are forgiven. You know, uh, among the things that we celebrate, many things to celebrate. Forgiveness from, for sin is just a big deal. Romans 4, verse 25, take a look. Verse 18, again, he's listing a whole bunch of things loaded with good things because Christ has risen from the dead. Your loved ones who died in faith are, in fact, safe with Christ. I know that I speak today to people who have lived long enough to have said a lot of goodbyes. I have too. It's funny. Um, there is something in us that, that protests death. Right? And that is, that is appropriate. I'm going to talk at several points today about that. Even in a Christian community, um, there's, there's a, there's a, listen, to me, there's a pendulum swing that, that happens through the years. Meaning by that, I, 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 please hear me carefully. We talk about celebrating, right? Celebrating a life and celebrating heaven and celebrating forgiveness. And I'm, I, I have no problem with that. I, I understand. I appreciate it. Celebrate. Yes. Uh, yesterday, that's where Kathy and I were. We were with a group of people over in Yakima celebrating the life and grieving the death of a friend. Fellow pastor, 92 years old, uh, our pastor, Kathy's in mind, when we were born, he was the pastor of our church. Um, we've known him our whole life. A lot of intersections along the way. Yes, we celebrate. We celebrate heaven. We spoke to his wife, grateful her husband's with the Lord, really. Two months short of their 70th wedding anniversary. Isn't that ridiculous? She was, she was kind of protesting. Well, he left me two months early. I said, yeah, but he counted your engagement, right? So yes, you were together 70 years. Come on. Uh, and I appreciate the, word, the language of celebration. But here's the pendulum swing that sometimes I chafe against just a bit. So don't, don't, don't overhear me. Uh, don't overapply what I'm don't, don't Don't quit using the language of celebrate. But let's just not forget that death is, involves a loss. And we're right to grieve. I don't mean like those with no hope. Oh, I know that. But sometimes in the language of celebration, you can almost be intimidated if you're crying. 
You know, like, like I'm doing, I must not be a person of very good faith because I'm sad. I'm supposed to be happy. To, oh, friend, be careful. Oh, be careful. Yes, we celebrate eternal life. Yes, we celebrate forgiveness. And we grieve. We grieve. We do both. I think that's, that's right. Your loved ones, then, in this text, who died in faith are, in fact, safe, safe with Christ. And then verse 19, the conclusion of that opening paragraph, Christ's resurrection loaded with good things for all of us. He says, then your faith is to be celebrated, not pitied. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. May I say to us, we live in a world that often pities people who live, by, live out their faith. That is, look at all the fun you're missing out on. Huh? I mean, come on. You're restraining yourself from stuff, selling yourself no, trying to live this good moral life. I, I, I've heard it. Yeah. I remember one time a, a friend said something about, about our kids, and uh, they probably don't want to do that because of the good moral foundation you guys are giving them. And it was intended to have a little, we're friends, intended to have a little poke in it. I, I get it. I, I, I got it. Uh-huh. But let me just say, our hope is not just in this life. And may I say this, Hebrews eleven six. it is worth it to serve Christ now. And on the day we stand before him, you'll be very glad you served him now. That's Hebrews eleven six. So this first paragraph, then uh, this, if then argument works all the way through, I'm going to step to the next paragraph. I want to keep it moving. Several things we want to talk about verses 20, then to 28. 20 to 28. I'm going to read that now then. Follow the argument and uh, including some of the nuances. He gets into some heavy duty theology here in a moment. He says then in verse 20, but in fact, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or have died for as by a man came death by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead for as in Adam all die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. This would be Christ. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Did you track those last three verses? Just checking. All right. We'll work on that. We'll work on that in in just a moment here. But this paragraph, then, as you see the heading, I, I put it this way. Christ rules now and his ultimate victory is certain. And I'm referencing two major theological categories. You've heard them from this pulpit before. Theologians often use these terms to help us correctly understand that is the already and the not yet. Things we already have, things that are already done, and things that are not yet completely fulfilled. Uh, Those two categories help us to think theologically. Things like this. We are already forgiven for our sin. Ephesians 2 says we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And not yet. You're still a mess today. Okay. Still struggling with sin already forgiven. 
not yet free from the, 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 the struggle with sin in your life. That'll come later, later when you're with the Lord. So already there are things already and there are things not yet. Christ already ruling and reigning. This is the discussion. People discuss this at some length in theological circles. Kingdom. You'll hear a lot of things about the kingdom. What things are, all, are, are already? What things are not yet? Well, a lot of theological circles that people run in here. I'm not going to go into those circles today. I'm just calling them out as categories. Things already done. Christ rules and reigns. Yes, absolutely today. And we, there, we still know there's a struggle going on. Not yet. It's not yet done. I, I think using those two categories helps to make sense of things. Because sometimes people will ask, well, if, if Christ has won the victory through the cross, indeed he has, resurrected from the dead, beat the power of death. How come I still have this problem? And how come the world is still such a mess? The answer in part is, listen, already, not yet. Already, not yet. The victory is, is certain, not yet wrapped up. Okay. So those two categories help us to think theologically about things. And I continue these things as well. Uh, the, the term first fruits is used in verse 20 and it's used in verse 23. The first fruits. Now, again, I'll be brief. It's a big category. In the Old Testament, there was a feast called the Feast of First Fruits. Now, it wasn't just an Old Testament feast, it was there on purpose. The Old Testament feasts, listen, when you read the Old Testament, don't just sit there and go, well, this is just really old and weird and who cares anymore. Hold on, friend. The Old Testament points us to Jesus. Okay, from the very beginning words, it points us to Jesus constantly. And this is one of those cool examples. What do you think the Feast of First Fruits was designed to teach? Well, there's a principle of the harvest. If you've, I've never been a, I've never been a farmer other than raising small, uh, you know, things in the backyard as a kid. Yep, that grew, digging them up to see how come they're not growing. I did all that. But, but when it comes to, to growing things, there's great joy when the first tomato ripens. Some of you do that. You go, hey, look at that. And I've got 38 more. Uh, tomatoes, uh, apples, whatever. You name, the, you name the product. There's great joy when the first one can be eaten. Yesterday, coming back from Yakima, we stopped at a fruit stand because I was looking for the first fruits of strawberry harvest. Zip. Zero. Nada. Not one. Too early for first fruits. I was looking. Christ raised from the dead. Paul says the first fruits of all those others who will be resurrected in the years to come. That's the point in the harvest is celebrating the beginning. Christ, he, he says, the first fruits. That's the word picture that's being used here. Christ, the first fruits. And may I say, listen, the promise of more to come. That's the point in the chapter. Okay. So Paul uses that term to help us to get it. It's the promise, the promise of more to come. Verses 21 and 22, Paul sets up a contrast. He does it in other places. I give you the text there in Romans chapter 5. I call it vintage Paul. He's playing back and forth to help us understand. He's teaching us by contrasting Adam and his work with Christ and his work. So he says, by a man came death. Who's the man? Well, Adam. He's looking at Adam. As by man came death. Why? Because Adam disobeyed. What did Christ do? Obey. The work of Adam brought death. The work of Christ brings life. He's drawing a contrast. Adam sinned, died. Christ didn't sin. He obeyed fully. 
died, didn't stay in the grave like that guy, resurrected from the dead. Death could not hold him in its power. Easter. My goodness, he's contrasting. As in Adam all die, yes, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, each in his own order. He's contrasting this. You can look at Romans 5 for a a lengthy uh, explanation of that more fully. Now, going to what follows in verse 24, this, this, these two verses, 24, 25, I think give the answer to what is God doing now? Or why am I still struggling with? He says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to the father. This is Jesus. He's going to deliver the kingdom to God, the father after destroying, he says, every rule and every authority and power for he must reign until he put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. What's going on right now then? Well, listen, there's a battle going on. Ephesians 6 talks about this. And you know what? You know it, don't you? There's a battle going on for your faith, battle going on for your heart, battle going on for your obedience. Yes, there's a battle going on. This is not, this is not a big mystery. If you live in this world, you know there's a battle. Some days, I'm telling you, it's there for me too. It's hard. Huh? Just me? Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah, there is a battle. There's a battle. We are in it, right? We need the word of God. We need the spirit of God to help us. We need the people of God to help us. Yes, there's a battle going on. Of course, there is a battle for your affections, a battle for your obedience. Yeah, these verses spell it out. Wow. Now, there was a lengthy explanation here, starting verse 27. I'm going to talk more about verse 26 in a minute. God has put all things in subjection, and this term's in subjection, and et cetera, uses this several times. And I, I, I want to just say a word. That's all I'm going to do. Just a word. I need a whiteboard and a, and a marker, I think, to try to understand this or put it a little more clearly. God has handed things to Christ to do in this world. God has put things says, in subjection to him. That battle's going on. Christ is going to rule and reign, ultimately, someday, fully and finally, wipe out sin and all who oppose him. Yes, indeed, he'll win. I think these verses are explaining all that. Christ, Christ is going to rule and reign. He's going to take care of business. And one day when it's all done, hands back the kingdom to God the Father. And this business of subjecting, I think God the Father hands it to the Son. If you do pre-marriage counseling with me, I use a couple big words. And I, because I think it teaches you about marriage. So I'm going to give you a couple. This is just, I mean, if this, if this is just too much, just set it aside and forget it. Okay. All right. Um, we talk about, uh, <laughs> well, metaphysics, being, issues of being, okay? Theologians talk about God like this. They talk about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit as all equal. You with me on that? Yes. Through the years, through the years, people writing doctrinal statements or songs that often teach good theology many times. They'll speak about the father and the son as co-equals, okay? Co-equal in glory, co-equal in power. Good theology, good biblical Trinitarian theology teaches that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all equal in holiness and power and perfection, all equal. Okay, you with me on this? Yes, good. The Bible also teaches that there is economy in the Trinitarian God. Meaning function. For example, 1 John 4.14 says, The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. 
What does that mean? They're not equal. No, not at all in terms of being completely equal. But the father sends the son. The son willingly submits to the father. What does that mean? They're not equal. That's quickly where we go. No, it doesn't mean that at all. Completely equal in terms of being. But function, by the way, this becomes in a whole other conversation, a model for Christian marriage. That's what Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is all about. Okay? Uh, The father sends the son to be the savior of the world. The son willingly submits and can do so correctly. Wise, wise father, a good, good father. The father and the son together send the spirit. John, gospel of John, uh, the spirit proceeds from. So there's economy, there's structure, there's order. That is what's in this text. The father has placed things in the son's hand. The son is going to do his work. And one day say, father, look, just like John 17, the great high priestly prayer. Jesus says, father, I completed the work you gave me to do. That is looking at the, his life at that point. There's going to be another day, greater day when the son says, father, I completed all of it. There's no, there's no rebellion anymore. We're kind of done with all of that. And it's going to be a great day. I think that's what Paul is referring to here. Was that clear? Pretty weak. Not a problem. We're going to move along. Okay. Good job. Good job on hanging in there. And there's another one of those coming up. I want to read verse 29 to 34. Again, all of this hangs together on the resurrection. Paul is fleshing out implications of the resurrection in their current circumstance. And as I read this paragraph, I want you to watch for four questions he asks. Okay. There are four that show up in verses 29 to 34, all aimed at uh, the logic behind if there's no resurrection, then man, are we in trouble? And why are people doing certain things? That's the goal. So I read this verse 29. Otherwise, Paul says, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. All right. What's he going to do with that? Well, if you take a look with me, it all comes under this heading of the resurrection of Christ, powerful life implications. Now, the four questions are pretty easy to call out. Uh, Verse 29, uh, one writer, one writer says, undoubtedly, that verse is the most difficult one to interpret in the whole letter. Sometimes when I come to an impasse on this business of, uh, like for here, we resur- or baptized on behalf of the dead, and I look for an easy way to explain it, or somebody else, among the people I check would be John MacArthur. He's pretty precise, isn't he? Uh, kind of detailed? Surely John MacArthur has a good answer for me on what verse 29 is all about. May I read this for you? I'm just going to read a paragraph from John MacArthur. I just tell you who it is. So here you go. I went to his website and said, what's he think verse 29 is all about? Here's what he says. I know you've asked yourself or asked other people, what does verse 29 mean? And I'm here to tell you, I have absolutely no idea what it means. <laughs> I thought, man, John MacArthur doesn't even know. <laughs> Buddy, we're in trouble. He says, I have absolutely no idea what it means, but I cannot be dogmatic. <laughs> 
I think that's you know, theologically very funny. He says there are some, there's somewhere between 40 and 400 possible interpretations of that. I don't know what it means. We could wander through a maze. I remember one of my classmates in seminary writing a dissertation on this. What a hopeless effort that was. <laughs> in the end, he didn't come to any conclusion, nor could he support the one he leaned toward. <laughs> How about that? I've read a few of those explanations about what verse 29 is about, and rather than rehearse them all here with you, I mean 40 to 400, I have summarized for you one, just one, that I think, okay, maybe that's going to help us. And then I'm going to leave it at that, okay? Um, This one that I'm offering you in the paragraph on your study sheet is based on the idea that when um, when Paul is talking about this, it doesn't make it sound like we're running out with water and dunking people uh, vicariously from the behalf of others. It doesn't sound like he's talking about other people in this case. Kind of sounds like that. What do these other people do? Uh, he doesn't say us, but I digress. My little explanation here, one possible way is to understand the phrase, those who are baptized on account of the witness of those who have died. That's one way to understand that. Think about that phrase. Those who have been baptized on account of, that is, for example, my our, our friend who whose life we remembered yesterday I could say in a sense, um, I am following in his footsteps of faith. He was our pastor as a child when we were children. Uh, Kathy and I, his wife visited my mom uh, when I was born. Uh, Very significant. My mom is spiritually single mom. You understand my life. And it was a big deal when the pastor's wife showed up. She remembered that. Um, His faith then lived on in the church. Uh, I was possibly one of the, his wife told me yesterday, I pray for you all the time. Um, I thanked her for that. Baptized on account of their witness, perhaps. Perhaps that's a way to understand that verse. I don't know. That's the best I've got. But it's clear that in the Bible, and please understand this, baptism for another in the place of another is never taught in the Bible. Ever. Nor is it ever taught in the Bible that any person can pray somebody else into heaven, pray somebody out of purgatory, somebody by your behavior can fix another. That is never taught in the Bible. So that's the stuff of cults and other types of faith systems, and uh, it is not taught in the Bible, Christian scriptures. So please understand that. But the bigger point of the paragraph, those four rhetorical questions, they're all underscoring things that people are doing that that if there's no resurrection, don't make any sense. And I think that's Paul's biggest issue. That's what those four questions are about. If, if there's no resurrection, why would you do that? Why would anybody do that? If you keep telling me there's no resurrection, what's all this other behavior about as much as we struggle to understand it? And that, I think, is, uh, is explained in verse 32. If the dead are not raised, uh, uh, frankly, his statement makes complete sense. If there's no life after death, if, if, if in this life only we have hope in Christ... You know, what are we doing this for? If, if, if when you close your eyes in death, the party is now done, darkness, and that's it. Why would you possibly, may I ask, why would you possibly live a good moral life? Anybody have any ideas? Probably because you're not very smart would be the answer, right? Because if I can take your lawnmower and take your stuff and ideally take your money and have a better time with it, and then it's all over and it doesn't matter, why would you live a good moral life? And I have not figured out, quite frankly, why people who deny any eternal existence, 
I don't know why they try to live good moral lives other than the witness in their own heart that there's something more. That's what I think. But logically, it makes no sense. No, Paul's playing that out. Christ's resurrection has powerful implications for us. But the bottom line of the paragraph, Christ did rise from the dead. Therefore, any sacrifice I make as I follow him is profoundly worth it all. Here's where I want to land this. Okay. I want to circle back to verse 26. Paul says in that context, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Is death an enemy? Yeah, it is. I know Christ conquered death by leaving the grave. I, I, I know that. I believe it profoundly. Yes, yes. But there is still an element of separation and loss that is ours when we say goodbye here to people we love. Christian faith, listen, Christian faith does not deny the fact that death hurts. So when you, when you as a father of Jesus say your goodbyes here to somebody you love, don't you, as you cry, don't say, I must be a bad Christian. No, absolutely not. No, you, you weep and you grieve because you lost somebody you love. Yeah, you don't do so without hope. I know, I know. You hang on to Jesus. You look ahead to heaven when there will be no more separation. But let it not be among us that if you grieve that there's something wrong with you. Oh, no. No, no. There's something right with you as a human when you say, oh, this hurts. Now, again, not as those who have no hope. I get it. You read my little responding to God's word section you, 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 you understand, I think, both of those elements. But I want to I close by remembering with you a little story from a, 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 a book I, I reference often because it's so profound. And that is John Bunyan's little book, Pilgrim's Progress. Um, there is a place in the book. It's, a, it's an extended allegory of people walking to the promised land. You guys know that. You've said it a bunch of times. And there's a place in the story where two of them are crossing the river, the river representing death. And John Bunyan, so wisely, is just a a good Puritan writer. He understands that people, good people of faith, see death differently. So he has two people walking through the river. One of them is walking through saying, I feel the bottom. The ground is firm. It's okay. We're going to make it. My eyes are on the city. I see the city. It's all right. We got this. He feels the bottom. And the other one walking to the same river, heading to the same city, is fearful and saying, oh, no, the current is strong. I don't see the city. We're going to get washed away. We're going to die. And the one is saying, no, 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 come on. We're going to make it. Keep going. Both of them, people of faith, experiencing the death just a little different one saying here we go and the other one going oh no i'm scared and i i I love those two because it reminds me there are some there are some just the way god's wired us and they're hanging on the word of god and so on and man cities in view and here we go marching to zion and someone else equally a person who holds on to the bible equally a person of faith who struggles a bit and Let us not judge that brother or sister, right? 
We're walking through the river. We're walking through the river. We're held in his hands. We're in his care. It's going to be all right. It's going to be all right because Christ has conquered death and the grave. Okay, that's what this chapter is all about. Next week, some more details on resurrection, resurrection body. And what's this all about? And why resurrect the body? Who needs this thing anyway? That's next week. Would you stand with me? Want to close in prayer? (laughs) Join me, please, as we pray. Father, this, this whole text today makes perfect sense to a person who, who knows Jesus as their Savior. They're trusting Christ. They believe the promise of God. They believe that Jesus died on the cross in their place. I also know that in the sound of my voice, there may be some, maybe many, listening through the airwaves who maybe have never trusted Christ as their Savior. They're not sure about all of this. And Father, it is, it is the work of the Spirit of God that we ask for today. To, to point people to you, to, to humble their hearts, to help them to see sin, their own sin, and, and today even, right now, to trust Christ. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me, rose from the dead. Yes, I'm going to hold on to him. All my eggs are in that faith basket. I'm going to trust Christ in him alone. Father, if, if today is the day you're going to do that great work of redemption, the heart of anybody, oh, it'd be, it'd be our great prayer. Father, we trust you today. Whatever comes our way this week, it's in your hands. Care for us as your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.